are here with Elise Fulmar, financial educator and content creator. She is the owner of Queered Co., a financial literacy business, and she takes intersectional approach to finances by recognizing and addressing how privilege, race, gender, sexuality, mental health, disability, and more can affect your ability to build wealth. And I'm super excited to have Elise here today because we're going to talk all about intersectionality, identity, and your money. So this is going to be a really deep conversation and I'm super pumped. So Elise, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited too. This is going to be good. Two years ago, I would say I had never even heard the word intersectionality before, much less knew what it meant. Um, I Googled it and, you know, did some research around that. For anyone watching who maybe still doesn't have a clear understanding, or maybe this is the first time they're hearing about it, can you explain what intersectionality is? Yeah. So intersectionality is a term that was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw. And I'm going to refer to the exact definition because I want to do it justice. So intersectionality is the interconnected nature of social categorizations such as race, class, and gender as they apply to a given individual or group regarded as creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantage. So um, Kimberly explains that it's like the acknowledgement that everyone has their own unique experiences of discrimination and privilege. And basically what this intersectionality is saying is that people can experience like overlapping forms of power, privilege, discrimination, disadvantage, all at the same time. So all of those things are can be happening at the same time. And um, like as an example, like for me being Um, I hold a lot of privilege because I'm white and I'm thin and I meet a lot of like the beauty standards. Um, So that gives me more privilege in society, but I hold, you know, less power than a man. And I also experience discrimination um, because I am queer and I'm neurodivergent. So those things can be true at the same time. Like I can both be experiencing discrimination and at the same time be, you know, more, have more privilege and power than somebody else. So that's kind of what intersectionality is referring to. And that's why it's really important to consider, especially when we're talking about personal finance, because you can't just like, we're talking about people and all these things are always happening. So we can't just like pull out one thing and pretend that the rest doesn't exist because that's not reality. (laughs) So that was going to be my next question is how does this intersectionality kind of impact our finances? For me, like what my opinion on it is that it's really important for us to understand our own identities and how those intersect and overlap and how each of those things influences our finances so that we can make more informed decisions and also understand where our mindset around money comes from and also maybe why our finances are the way they are. And I think that it can be freeing to also know that a lot of it is out of your control and that, you know, you can't like outwork systems of oppression. Like there's going to be barriers that you're facing that will just always exist. And I think that that can be freeing in a sense that you can understand that these things will exist and it's not my fault. And I need to find the ways that I can best work within those constraints um, rather than thinking that it is your fault that that's where you're at. And I think that's what a lot of traditional personal finance advice kind of preaches is that it's like, you just need to work harder. You just need to make more money. You just need to be more motivated and you'll get there, um, which is really not true. And um, yeah, that's why it's important to think about in terms of our finances. And I think that a lot of people view their money in a vacuum. So when they're looking at their finances, they're thinking about it in terms of the numbers and like, how can they crunch the numbers so that they have more money each month and so they can pay off more debt and how things make sense. And they forget about the fact that 
they're an individual person and the way that they view, understand, spend money is going to be different than somebody else. So like, you can't just take the person out of finance, which um, is my, my company's tagline actually is keep finance personal. And that is referring to the idea that we need to remember the person when we're talking about finances. And I think that a lot of traditional finance advice actually ignores that and just gives like cookie cutter advice that doesn't actually take into account people's individual identities. Okay. I have so many questions based on what you said. So it's going to be a bit all over because I'm just like, no, it's okay. I, I feel like I was just word vomiting. This is perfect. This is fine. I want to talk about money and identity for a little bit because there is a lot of our identity that's wrapped up in money and vice versa. Can you kind of talk about how that impact, how our finances impact our identity? So when I first saw that question, it kind of caught me off guard because I think that I often think about it in the opposite way. Like, how our identity impacts our finances. And I haven't often thought about it in the reverse. Um, But I would say like something that immediately comes to mind when I think about that is like the inability to uh, express your identity because of your finances. So you may not have the budget to say, um, dress the way that you want to, or like wear the clothes that you feel like represent, you know, who you are, Um, especially like, that relates a lot, I feel like, to the LGBTQ plus community is like being able to express your sexual orientation in through clothing for a lot of people. So if you don't have like the money to do so, that can be constricting. I don't know. Is that like the, is that kind of what you meant by like, do you mean like the constraints of your money and how that affects your identity? I, I think it's kind of both sides, right? Like I think like we sometimes, I, I mean, myself included, will often identify as something based on my income right? So there's like that, or my finances, right? Like I am a high income earner or low income earner. I'm poor. I'm a millionaire. Like what and how we attach identity to that money piece. And it becomes a a little bit of who we are. Yeah. Yeah. So I think when we're talking about identity, there's lots of like different areas to explore. So like one of the first kind of like starting points to think about is your social identities is what they're called. And these are basically like your um, kind of like more obvious aspects of your identity that people will perceive you in a certain way because of that. So um, like your race is a social identity, your age, um, you know, the language that you speak. Um, Sometimes like your sexual orientation might be more obvious from the way that you're dressing, like things like that. So, you know, thinking about like race, ethnicity, um, gender, sexual orientation, language, like those types of things are kind of like the core, I guess, pieces of identity that I feel like have a really big impact. Obviously, there's a lot more that I didn't name too. Um, But what you refer to in terms of like your socioeconomic status and your class, you know, that obviously plays into your identity as well. And that's maybe something that can change. And yeah, all of these pieces of our identity impact the way that we understand money. But then that also can I guess to work in the reverse in what our money is doing can then impact the way that we understand our identity. So it is like a kind of, I guess, confusing topic. So I I see what you're saying with um, class and like if you are living in poverty or if you're a middle class earner, like that might affect the way that you think about your finances. Yeah, I guess I'm not really sure how to answer this question. I'm like, (laughs) but you know what? I I think you answered it perfectly. I think it's, it's about 
there is all these relationships and nobody has a clear answer. I don't think there is like me asking the question is not like, well, you're the expert and I need a firm answer. I don't think there is an answer. And I think your ability to say, I don't really know is where we're all at, right? Like that's, we just don't know. And we're still, I think that whole piece of, I think because the awareness of intersectionality is so new as far as the awareness of what it is. It's always been there, but there's it's coming more to light that we're all still trying to navigate and figure out what that means and how does that play into our identity and our money, right? Like it is all attached. I was going to say, I think in my experience, like it's more helpful, I think, or like illuminating to think about it in the opposite way. Like how is your identity impacting your finances? And so like thinking about like one of the things I'll like ask my clients is like to do some reflection on their identity. So like, what are the major pieces of your identity? Um, Like what are the pieces of your identity that you're really proud of? What are pieces that you've experienced privilege from or discrimination from? Um, You know, what are parts of your identity that you feel comfortable sharing or don't feel comfortable sharing? So like just reflecting on your general feelings about your identity and then kind of going a step further and thinking about, okay, how does that impact the way that I make purchasing decisions? How does that impact the way that I like thought I think about this form of my finances or how did that impact like growing up? What was my household like? How did we talk about these things? And like to give personal examples, like I often talk about, you know, me being queer and being neurodivergent and like my mental health and how much those have impacted my finances in just like so many different ways. It's like there's it's so interwoven in every decision that I make because it is like such a big part of my identity that um, basically every financial choice is ties back to that. Um, And like being neurodivergent, for example, like a lot of traditional money systems and like budgeting systems are just like really boring to me and I like can't follow them. Um, So that's like one example is I've had to find systems that are um, almost like gamify finances so that it's like really like new and exciting for me all the time. And also like having to establish like savings accounts and things that like supported my mental health when it wasn't doing great. So I'd have like a fallback for that. Also like impulsivity is a big thing with neurodivergent folks um, or with people with ADHD. And so like impulse spending was also something that was like really tightly tied to me being neurodivergent. And I didn't understand that until I was diagnosed and started doing research on how much like that aspect of my identity was impacting my money. And I was kind of coming at it from oh, I just need to be more disciplined and have more like willpower. Whereas it was like more about understanding how I could, you know, understand my identity and how that would impact my finances and finding systems that supported that. Um, And I think now that we're talking about this, the back and forth, I think that mental health is probably one of the best examples of like having both of those sides, because if your mental health is not doing great, if you're going through like a hard time, and just not like operating at your best self, then your finances are most likely going to take a hit because you're probably more focused on like taking care of yourself and like trying to complete your daily living tasks that you're not like putting extra energy into managing your finances. So then your finances get worse. And then when you look at your finances, that makes your mental health worse. And so then like, that's like a really negative, like vicious cycle. So I think um, that's actually a good example of how your finances can affect your identity because um, I guess not so much that it would affect your identity, but just, um, yeah, make it more prominent in that moment, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And I think there's some pieces with that. And I think the pandemic especially has definitely shone a light on mental health in like all sorts of things. And so I think that is a really good piece to play because it does play into our finances. Um, and it's like that pendulum that swings back and forth and they kind of interact with each other. 
When I think about intersectionality as a female, one of the first things I come up with when it comes to money is the gender wage gap. That is, it feels like there is lack of power, some oppression there, you know, discrimination for sure. Can you think of some other examples of intersectionality and money and that relationship? Yeah, so there's definitely a lot. Um, One of the ones that came to mind right away was like the cultural kind of expectations around money. So um, with a lot of like different cultures, there is like certain financial expectations, I guess, to provide for the family or to like retire their parents. And that's like something that um, plays a role as well. So like even comparing a financial situation between me and someone else who had maybe all of the exact same um, like same living expenses, same income, like everything, but they come from a different cultural background. That is like something that would come into effect. Like that would affect their ability to say invest money for themselves because maybe they're giving like a large chunk to their family. Um, that's just like one of them. Also, socioeconomic status. Not even just the fact that like obviously, if you have a lower income, that you know puts you at a disadvantage. But also, just like being raised in a low income household can often create like scarcity around money, and that's something that can like carry on to adulthood as well um, because you didn't have like money readily available when you were younger. Then that if you do have money when you become older, like that could be a hard thing to manage as well. And just like working through that mindset piece too. So um, that's like, I guess, a piece of intersectionality that can also play into a situation is like just your, your mindset around money and how you were kind of raised and what your parents taught you about money. Um, Definitely opportunity, which I feel like also plays into the gender wage gap, but just like the opportunity that people have. um, And like their access to opportunity and like the barriers that exist for them. And yeah, something else that I really feel like applies to women is um, that kind of extends off the gender wage gap is like, we're kind of constantly told by society that we are worth less than men. Like we are worth, like we we should get paid less than men and our salary should be lower than men. And so I feel like that really affects women's relationship with money and will spill over into a lot of different areas because you're basically being told your entire life that you're not worth as much as someone else. And so, and of course that's even greater for like marginalized groups. So then thinking about that in other senses of like, you go to negotiate a salary, you already have this like subconscious thought that like you don't deserve to ask for as much. And so that can be a hard thing to like, even have that conversation. Um, because it's already like so ingrained in a lot of women, because that's just like what society has kind of told us. Definitely sexuality or like sexual orientation as well plays into this. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize like the discrimination that you could face in the workplace and like harassment and how that might influence your ability to like stay at a job, keep a job, um, get hired in the first place, like ask for a raise, get promoted, things like that for my girlfriend and I, we actually experienced a lot of discrimination when trying to find a place to rent. And it's one of those things that's like, I don't really have like examples of people out like outright saying like, oh, we're not renting to you because you're two women in a relationship. But like, it was just all these like small things that I really picked up on. And I know that that also happens for like, you know, um, the black community, the indigenous community, they also like, I've heard people talking about this before. And I didn't, I had never experienced it until being in a relationship with a woman. So that's something else too, that uh, really, I didn't understand until I was put in a situation where I experienced it. And that is like another example, of like intersectionality and money. And we ended up like having to, we actually ended up completely moving provinces and <laughs> um, raising our like rental budget in order to like, 
be in a neighborhood and community that, you know, was accepting of us. So yeah, I feel like there's a million examples that I could go into. I think it's super interesting when you bring up that, like the rental example, because I was reading recently, someone was talking about how they were being discriminated against as a rental um, because they were a single mom with kids. And it was like, yeah, that's another, you know what I mean? Like, absolutely. And it's interesting for me because as a landlord, like I own rental property, none of those would ever cross my mind. <laughs> like, it's just like, to me, it's like, oh, you have an income or two incomes. Great. Like, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not trying to say I'm like altruistic or anything like this, but it's just like so many things is, and maybe that's because at times I've been discriminated against because I'm a female and things like that, that it may be more understanding. I don't know. But yeah, like, I just think you're right. There are a lot of examples and the cultural example is a really good example. Even just the like, oh, this culture is good with money. This culture is not good with money. You know, and you, you have those things ingrained and you're right when it comes to negotiating, we often think, oh, I shouldn't do it. I feel bad. Whereas men, sometimes I'll just go in there and they're like, oh, whatever, I'm just going to do it. And it's like, we need to kind of have that more, you know, cavalier attitude sometimes, but it's hard when we have been raised very differently. Totally. And I think that's a good point too, is like women are often raised to like not talk about money because it's like rude and disrespectful and it's taboo and like that type of thing. Whereas like men are more likely to be taught like negotiation or just like asking for what you want and like not apologizing for it. Like that's more kind of ingrained in like what young men are taught. And so they're already like coming into the system with an advantage because that's more part of like typical like male culture just like the way that they're raised it's not as it's not considered rude when like a man talks about money or asks questions about money but it's often considered rude when a woman woman does it in like traditional environments I know we're, we're starting to move past that which is good but I think like yeah that also plays a role too is like if you grew up in a household where you didn't talk about money which is how I grew up like money was the taboo topic my parents did not talk about money. It puts you at a really disadvantage when you go to like get hired for your first job and you're in a job interview. Like if you've never talked about money. How are you supposed to like have a salary negotiation conversation? Like that's going to be extremely uncomfortable and you're probably either not going to do it or you're going to really lowball yourself because no one told you to like how to advocate for yourself and for to talk about money in like that type of traditional setting. Absolutely. So now here's a tough question. So in a financial system that favors one type of person, right? You can, we have a picture in our mind of what that favors. We're not that type of person. Obviously as a woman, we're not. And for many other different reasons, how can we thrive in this system? We we're in a system that does not favor us. How, how do we help to correct that imbalance and how can we start to thrive in this system? I don't know if there's an answer to how we can thrive in this system. Um, I think that goes back to intersectionality. And I think unfortunately for a lot of people, they, they may not be able to ever thrive in the systems that are created like as a systems that exist right now. I think like the most important and the, the biggest challenge is like dismantling systems of oppression um, is like the most important thing that we can work on. And obviously that involves a lot of different things, um, but like getting involved in any way that you can, whether that's like signing petitions or donating money or um, sharing different social media posts, elevating voices, like that's a really important thing that we all need to be working on. Um, obviously, that's a big thing. So I'll give some <laughs> smaller examples too. I think advocating for yourself and for other people, especially people that are more marginalized than you, um, if you see discrimination or harassment happening in the workplace, advocating for those people, standing up for them, especially when they're not in a space too, or they're not in the room is like bringing that voice to the table and bringing that up in conversation. Like I have a background in uh, working with people with disabilities and just like in the disability world. And so I've seen a lot 
where there'll be like conversations about how to make like a rec center, let's say more accessible. And there will not be like one person in the room who is actually disabled. And it's like, okay, well, <laughs> um, that's not helpful. So like it's in those situations, like if you're in a meeting room, if you're talking about something like bringing up, like, how do you think the black community would respond to this post? How do you think, um, like, who are we trying to speak to? Is it going to speak to these people? Is it going to harm other people? So that's an important thing to do too. Uh, another thing that everyone can start doing tomorrow <laughs> is talking about salary and being transparent about your salary. Ask people at your job what they're making. And a good hint here is if you're not allowed to directly ask people, which I think is absolutely ridiculous and that should not be a law anywhere. But um, another thing you can do is do like the over under question. So do you make over or under $50,000 as opposed to like, if you can't comfortably ask them, like, how much do you make? You can kind of do like an over under question, but talking openly about salary is super important for, you know, being able to fight for more equality. And that's, yeah, that's something that I feel like most people can start doing right away. Another thing to start doing is having more conversations about money. And this can be in a really casual sense too. Like even just, you know, talking to your friends and asking them like, Hey, like, what's your favorite credit card? Like, what kind of rewards do you get? Why do you like it? Um, what savings account do you really like? What, what are you saving for? Like, what are your financial goals? You don't have to ask like personal questions if you don't feel comfortable about like how much they're making or how much they're investing, but you can ask more broad questions just to start talking about money and making it more of a common conversation. That also helps with like breaking down some of the taboo that exists around money. Other things we can do are making financial education more accessible. So obviously that's a huge goal of mine on my platforms. Um, but also like if you have the ability to implement something like that in your workplace, like accessibility to employees also obviously within schools, like that's a huge goal of mine too, is like to bring more financial education to the school system. I think that's where it's should be should be free for everyone. So that's something um, using simple, easy to understand, accessible like terms and information. And this is like beyond just like financial, tangible financial advice, like even in like salary negotiations, like when you're talking about different like terms of a contract or things like that is like making sure that you're breaking things down in a way that like the candidate or the person that you're talking to is going to be able to like clearly understand. Cause I think that's also where a lot of issues arise is that people don't understand, but they also don't feel like it's a safe space to ask questions. So that like creates a, a weird dynamic. So like doing as much as you can to make things more simplified and more accessible for more people that also reminded me of safe spaces, which is super important. Um, I think that's a really big barrier in financial spaces is like, I think most people can probably relate to like being in a classroom at some point, whether it was like in elementary, or if you went to post-secondary and just like feeling like stupid for wanting to ask a question and you felt like you couldn't raise your hand because maybe like you thought like everyone else in the class got it. And you're just like, I have no idea what's going on right now. <laughs> so I'm sure most people can relate to that. And that's kind of how a lot of financial spaces are too. If people don't feel safe to ask questions, they're not going to, and that's just going to like perpetuate the taboo and keep, you know, uphold more of those systems. Um, because it is typically like people that are from, you know, marginalized identities that feel less safe, or even just like me, a woman going in and talking to like an old man at the bank, it already doesn't feel like a great safe space. Yeah, those are some ways that we can like help with this in terms of things that you can personally do. I think that, you know, un understanding your own financial situation and taking steps to learn more about finances and increase your financial literacy are something that you can do to help, you know, I don't want to say thrive, but like, 
Just educate yourself. I think it helps elevate. Absolutely. Yeah, just get a little bit, <laughs> a little bit more kind of freedom in the constraints that you're operating within. And um, kind of beyond that, having savings and starting to invest are also really important because, you know, we're already at a disadvantage for men. I know there's a lot of statistics out there about women will, you know, start investing later, they will invest less, they will take less risk with investing. Um, because a lot of it has to do with like fear around it and like not understanding how to begin, which are is completely valid because no one's ever taught you. But I think if you're able to seek out the resources to learn a little bit, and you do not have to know everything about investing, I promise, like even if you just have a baseline knowledge, you can start. And there's a lot of services that will do it for you. So you don't even have to like do the research into like individual investments, even just like starting there, like that also helps with the inequality because that, you know, you can create wealth for yourself. And then if you are someone who wants to have a family, you can start creating generational wealth for your children and that's going to help them. And like, it can just become a cycle. So yeah, start investing when you're able to, is definitely another important thing for being able to thrive in those systems and advocate yourself, ask for a raise, negotiate your salary. You deserve it. I think I, I agree with so many things. I'm just like right here. I'm just like, yep, totally agree. And I think the whole like money is taboo and women don't talk about money is one of the main reasons why I wanted to do this summit was just like, there are so many strong female voices that we're all, we just want to elevate, right? Like a rising tide lifts all boats. So it's like, it's not competitive. Let's help each other out. Let's learn from each other and make it a safe space to learn about money. Because I mean, I'm someone who I understand money a little bit. I know, like, I'm not saying I'm an expert, but I'm, I've been in the bank before and I'm questioning the banker about things. And I've sat there while he talks to my husband and won't even acknowledge me. And he'll say no to my question, but say yes. And my husband's like, that's exactly what she just asked you, right? So having somebody in that room and just saying like, no, you need to talk to her. And how many times, like, it's as weird as it sounds, like, because I run the money in our family, how many times where we'll get emails addressed directly to him? And it's like, you know, it's me, <laughs> you know, and it, just those little things. And it just drives me crazy. So I think that's a great point. The more we talk about it, the more it's comfortable, even if it's amongst ourselves, then the more everyone's going to feel comfortable and empowered. And I think those are all really good tips and things that we can start to do today. It doesn't have to be like this big thing, right? Those, those, those small little things will eventually take down that system, but it can start with small steps. Absolutely. I'm loving this conversation by the way. And I think knowledge is enlightening and I'm learning so much now we've got names to things that I think we always knew would happen, but we didn't really know. Whereas now things are being named. We're actually being more aware of it. And I think awareness is like the big piece. Um, so with all of that being said, is there anything else that you would like any, like the women watching anything else you want to share kind of before we wrap up? Yeah, I have two things I want to share. So the first thing is that it's, I wanted to say that it's not your fault wherever you're at with your finances. I think that it's pretty common for especially being women to just like take on the responsibility or like the guilt or shame from a lot of different things and really like put ourselves at the forefront and be like, you know, that was me. I did that. Like we just tend to take on the weight, I think of a lot. And so I just want to say that it's not your fault. It's not anybody's fault. Like in most cases, we were not given the tools to succeed. And even like our parents weren't given the tools to succeed. And, you know, you can't teach your children something that you never learned either. So it's really like a cycle. It's this, it's a system that's been going on for so long. And so I just want to say that it's not your fault wherever you're at with your money and just acknowledging that and kind of like maybe forgiving yourself for some of the things that you've said and kind of like letting that go a bit, but then knowing that you do have, you know, you do have the power to make changes and it is now like, you know, your responsibility to kind of 
do what you can while still acknowledging that there is going to be barriers present that you won't be able to overcome, unfortunately, in our lifetime. But that doesn't mean that you still can't create as great of a situation as possible in the situation that you're living in. And there's probably a lot of changes that you can make that would make a huge difference in your finances and in your quality of life. So that kind of leads me into my second thing I want to share, which is back to safe spaces. I think one of the most important things you can do is find safe spaces for you to learn about finances. So there's obviously so many amazing women presenting at this summit, and there's so many amazing finance creators online. So it doesn't have to be me if you don't resonate with like me and my story, but find someone, some people that you can follow and learn from that you feel really safe in, like you feel seen and understood and heard. And that's super important for increasing your financial literacy, because those are going to be the people where you'll feel safe enough to ask questions and to reach out and to like comment on their thing and get clarification. And that's kind of what you that's what you really want when it comes to learning about finances. So um, something I like to do is with my clients is have them have a little list of red flags and green flags when it comes to like creators and also like if you're working with a financial advisor or anything so have your list of red flags if any of those show up don't follow them don't (laughs) take their financial advice and then have your list of green flags of like things that are kind of like your wish list for people to work with um that can really help you feel more comfortable and safe in those spaces so yeah focus on that and you know let go of the traditional finance systems that aren't working stop trying to like push yourself in to fit into that system because it's not designed for you and find a system that works for you. It's like, it doesn't matter what Dave Ramsey tells you you should be doing. He's wrong. Don't listen to him. <laughs> find what works for you. I really like that. Give yourself grace, you know, realize that you have some agency there. And, and the red, like, red flags, green flags, I have never, well, I've seen, I mean, I've heard of red flags before, but as far as having that, like, for who you want to work with, red flags, green flags, what a great way to have, to systemize that kind of thing. Um, so you kind of take the emotion out a little bit and know what you want and not waste your time. So I think that is such a great tip. I want to thank you, Elise. I think this has been really enlightening. If people, if what you're saying really resonates with people and they want to connect with you, where can they do that? Yeah, so lots of places to connect. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Elise.Fulmore, which I'm sure will be linked somewhere. So if you don't have to figure out the spelling for that. And uh, my TikTok is at queerdco, queer.co, which is my brand name. And I also did recently launch a podcast, which is called Keep Finance Queered. And you can find that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, you know, the main platforms you listen to podcasts. and yeah, the the big part about that podcast is giving the mic to people that are not usually included in finance conversations and really exploring how their identity has impacted their money. And so there's a lot of different amazing stories from a lot of different people from different backgrounds. So I'm pretty confident that at least one of the guests I have coming in this season will really resonate with you and your lived experience. So definitely recommend checking that out. And I go into more detail on all my platforms about identity and money and intersectionality and the different ways that those can impact you and especially about ADHD and being queer. So if you are, if you identify with either of those, you'll definitely love my content. (laughs) Awesome. Again, I want to thanks Elise for her time. Awesome. Thank you for having me.